Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about cash balance plans, the taxes on I-bonds, and whether you should be funding a 529. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you. Are you dressed for the uh, Bob Marley movie right now? What, what uh, What's going on with your outfit today? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, in what I'm sure will be a surprise to no one, I was briefly in a Bob Marley tribute band, and I did buy this, this little uh, zip-up to use in our performances. That's funny but, to me that that's exactly why you own it. Maybe you told <laughs> me that before, and that was in my subconscious, but when I saw you rocking three-stripe Adidas, that was immediately where my mind went. That's so funny. Yeah. So I still have it. I'm no longer in the Bob Marley tribute band, though I remain a big fan of Bob Marley's music. And I am excited for the movie. It should be fantastic. I'm excited for it as well. I, I haven't gone to see anything in a movie theater in a little while. So I that is one I would like to see in the theaters just to support some great biopics over, you know, I thought like the Bohemian Rhapsody was great. Like I, I think some of these biopics about musicians that I, I enjoy are, are pretty cool. While we're on the subject, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, I'm going to put a plug out there for something that's on Netflix now, a great documentary in the music world about the uh, recording of We Are the World back in the 80s. Fantastic documentary, very interesting, and it's just all around fun to watch. Love that. I'll put it on the list. It may be a long list, but there is a list. So today we're doing a mailbag episode. It's time for our February mailbag. I feel like we just did one of these and I looked at the recording schedule and it was literally 29 days ago that we recorded our last mailbag. So it has been a month. We're diving in to see what you, our listeners, want to hear about. We have an email address for the show. It's checkyourbalancesatoutlook.com. That is the worst account I've ever dealt with. We really need a new email. We so do. much stuff gets flagged as junk. I, like I kind of skim through it and I often find a listener email in the junk and so much stuff gets through and not flagged as junk. That is total garbage. We're going to send that. us feedback on Instagram at check your balances. If you'd like, you can also comment on the YouTube videos. If that's where you consume us, if you want to see Dan's awesome Adidas tracksuit that he's rocking right now, that is on YouTube, all of the places that you can find us, but we're going to dive in. This week, we start with a question from Brian. He wrote this in a while ago. So, uh, Brian, we appreciate your patience. But he says, can you do an episode describing the pros and cons of cash balance plans? He's a physician working with a small group of doctors. We're starting a little bit late in terms of saving for retirement, probably because of med school. That's okay. And he's got a colleague that thinks cash balance plans are the way to go to get caught up. Dan, when I read this, I immediately went... Oh, God, I know I had to learn about these for the CFP exam. I have not touched a cash balance plan in terms of using it for contributions. I've rolled them over. I've talked about kind of what people do with them at the end of having them. I talk about that quite a bit, but I haven't actually dealt with setting one up or the pros and cons of this outside of an academic setting. But I think you've got a client that has one. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. Why do we want a cash balance plan? Why is Brian's colleague talking about this? 
So I, I definitely remember learning about them for the CFP. Before the CFP, in my insurance days, all the sales managers were pitching cash balance plans to their reps because that is a way to get a lot of money into often what is an annuity wrapper. Uh, so they loved getting you out on the streets and telling people to open these up because it could be a very fat insurance commission for those agents if you pitch it to the right person. That said, there are benefits to a cash balance plan. Why would you want to do one? So a cash balance plan is a little bit different than a 401k. So with a 401k that we're more used to, you as the employee are able to put money aside into the plan, invest it, and watch it grow. Maybe there's an employer match associated with that as well. It's called defined contribution, by the way. So yeah, that, that's the term is you're allowed to decide how much to contribute. That's a defined contribution plan. Correct. You are the basically the primary driver of what goes into the account. All the way on the other end of the spectrum, if you think about traditional pension plans, those are called defined benefit plans because you are told this is what you will get out of the plan. You're not really the driver. It's based on your income and some formula that they're going to pay you a predetermined amount every month based on your earned credit. A cash balance plan is kind of somewhere in the middle. So you are accruing money in an account that is yours, but it is driven by trying to target some income in the future. For that reason, you can get a lot of money into a plan like this if you are a high wage earner. And then because they're trying to get you to a target income like at a retirement age, if you're older, you need to get more money in in order to catch up and get to that level that whatever the plan design is. I should back up and say, you don't put your own money in. It's the company putting money in for you. That's the difference here. So if you're on the older side and run your own business and are the owner of a business, you can set up a formula so that you can get a ton of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars into an, a retirement account in your name here. But again, it's best suited for small, tight-knit groups. If you're the owner of the business and value the tax deferral, you know, it can be very, very lucrative for you. Yeah. So Brian's situation is almost, it sounds like the perfect one, right? What you generally want are high earning older principals that are willing to make a huge cash outlay on their behalf. And then for their staff, they're going to have to contribute as well. But you're backing out a formula that is way further into the future and probably based on much less income, right? So for your admin folks or your support team, you're still making a contribution for them, but if they're 25, 30 years away from retirement, the present value of what you have to put in today is low because it's got 25 years to grow, where the formula might be for yourself at 60 and you're only two, three, four years away from it. And so you've got much less time, which is going to require that cash to make the formula work. And so basically it allows you to offset this huge amount of money for the principals that are in that high earning category. But the business has to be willing and able to do it. And so generally we see this with physician practices, dentist practices, sometimes attorneys, right? So, so, so folks where you've got that huge disparity kind of in age and earnings power going on between the owners of the firm and the support teams. Right. So while it can be exciting, you do want to make sure that you can fund it on an ongoing basis. So you don't want to start it and then stop the next year. That's, that's a mistake. 
It is administratively expensive because there's a lot to be aware of there. You need actuarial calculations for the contributions and administrators. Contributions are going to be skewed. So if you're not a sole practitioner here and you have different principals and different employees, you're going to have to make widely different contributions for each person. So you need to be comfortable with that too. I will also mention that at, at retirement, even though it is kind of a hybrid pension plan offering, you do have the ability to take the benefit as an annuity payout, like as a income stream, or just roll the money over as you would. You have access to that lump sum if you choose. Yeah. So that's normally where I end up seeing these and interacting with them is, hey, should I take this income stream? Should I roll the thing? What do I do with it? You know, th- those sorts of annuity payout options. That's That tends to be where I interact with these the most. The person you need is really a pension consultant for this. You, this is a specialized skill set, even in our world. Like me and Dan looked at each other before we recorded this and went, oh my God, do we know enough to talk about this intelligently and not screw this up? It's that specialized. It's not that we've never seen it before, but the people that do this every day are in the best position to give you really good advice. And and we we know just enough to be dangerous on something like this. So Brian, thank you for listening. I hope that helps. And I hope that that at least points you in the right direction on why this would be something to consider. Okay, let's move on to a quick note from Todd who wrote in about something we missed or left out of our discussion on I-bonds. First of all, Todd only uses one utensil, a butter knife to make his peanut butter and jelly. I I continue to get hate for this. That's fine. You know what? I actually think it's not even that I use two knives. I think more often than not, my actual method is a knife and a spoon because the jelly that I currently have in my home is like in a jar. I'm not sticking a knife in there because that's not a particularly efficient tool. So I'm fine with everybody using one knife. I'm still going to be a two utensil guy and I don't care about your hatred in, in our inbox. That's fine. I will accept it. So Todd's actual note here is about I-bonds that we didn't mention that the interest on an I-bond is free from state and local taxes. Specifically, this is the I-bonds from the treasury, not I-bonds from BlackRock and iShares. Dan, did we, did we miss something major by not explaining that? Probably. And, and that's a true statement. So I always find it funny because it's the reverse of what you think would happen. So the federal government issues a bond. You think that the natural thing would be them saying, all right, we won't tax you on this. This is our bond. The other people will tax you. But it's actually the reverse. They're like, we're going to tax you on this. The state and local governments won't tax you. But that can be a meaningful benefit. So when you're comparing bonds, oftentimes to get an apples to apples comparison, you need to get a tax equivalent yield when you're comparing interest rates. So if you were to look at this versus, say, a corporate bond, you would need to either reduce the corporate bond's yield by the tax or increase the yield of this federal I-bond or any other federal bond that you own for the tax benefits you're getting to get a more true comparison. So for anybody in an income tax-free state, you can ignore this part of the show entirely. This makes no difference to you. But for folks in high tax states, this could be a meaningful difference between even what you're getting on your savings account, right? We're seeing savings account rates at the four and a half to five and a quarter percent range now. And if you're getting four and a half percent on your I bond and five and a quarter on your savings account, that tax difference may become the difference for you on what you're paying at a state level 
particularly in a higher income tax state or if you've got high local state taxes. So yeah, that that I do think is meaningful. I tend not to make a tax equivalent decision like that. I like I certainly get it on like a muni. I, I don't know if my brain just doesn't continually compute that on an I-bond that I don't think about it that way. But that's also true with with regular treasuries, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that certainly makes treasuries more attractive if you are in a high income tax state relative to just owning a money market, right? If, if you've got equivalent protection or you view it as equivalent, I think that makes the treasury much more attractive. Right. I mean, if, if you have a generally high income and are subject to a lot of taxes and you own a lot of fixed income vehicles in non-qualified accounts, this becomes a bigger deal for you. All right. Let's go to another email. This comes to us from Dan, not you, Dan, a different Dan. He enjoys the show, but he has confusion as to why anyone would use a second knife to make a PB&J. Calls it madness. I accept your madness, Dan. He's got a question about retirement account prioritization. He and his wife are able to do a backdoor Roth IRA. They can do the catch-ups up to $8,000 there. They can do a Roth 403B, which allows them to do up to $30,500. So they're they're over 50. So they've got the catch-up amounts on both of those. That's a lot of money. It would be a pretty big stretch for us to do both of those. Does it make sense to prioritize one over the other? So Roth IRA versus Roth 403B. Does it matter? Should you prioritize one over the other? Dan, what do you think about Dan's question? I don't think there's a correct answer here. I think there are different methods to go about this this problem. My personal preference would be to fund the 403B, just to avoid the big song and dance of having to do backdoor Roth conversions. You have a more direct line of making Roth contributions. If you're not looking to go over the annual contribution of lim- limit of the 403B, I would prefer to do that just to keep life simple than having to go through all the administration. There are reasons why you might consider doing the backdoor Roth, one of them being perhaps the availability of more investment choices that might be better for you. And if you don't have a Roth IRA open already, there is value to starting the clock on getting a Roth open as soon as possible as well. But assuming that you have the Roth and you're comfortable with the 403B choices, just go direct. You don't, you don't need the intermediaries. Yeah, my, my instinct is the same as yours. I would prioritize it just because it's automatic. Like I, to, to me, the active decision that you have to make every time you move from a, a passive decision where I can make it once and I'm just going to enjoy the benefits and the fruits of, of planting that tree for the rest of the year... I like that. So as much as I can automate my finances, I would prefer to. And so for me, the 403B is going to be the easier way to automate that where you just don't have to think about saving ever again. You set it and you let it cook. If you are a stock picker, if you are interested in choosing exactly what ETF or fund or stock or you know whatever you're invested in, the Roth IRA is going to give you way more flexibility. You can't do that in most 403Bs. And maybe it's got a self-directed option and this is where it gets super specific to what do you have available to you. But on average, from a fund lineup, if you've got really crappy funds, I would probably go with the backdoor Roth IRA. But from a tax bucket perspective, they're absolutely identical. You're going to get tax-free growth in either. 
you know, the, the one final thing I'll say, depending on how much you're making is just look for, look for where you're going to have low tax opportunities, right? If you are very close to retirement and in peak earning years, even if you don't have money in that Roth bucket, it might make sense to go pre-tax for a few years because you're going to get a window to pull that money in low tax rates. So I've said it a bunch. I'll continue to say this. My threshold tends to be 22% and below as federal rates. I think it probably makes sense to stick with the Roth for now. 24% is kind of a bubble rate. I would basically split the difference. And if you're above a 24% federal income tax rate, I would probably prioritize pre-tax. Now, that is not a hard and fast rule. There's so many different things. But if that's the case, especially as you're approaching retirement, you're probably going to see a drop and a window where you can get some money out of there. So don't completely ignore pre-tax just because you're focused on building the Roth. The goal isn't to get everything into the Roth. It's to have a balanced attack and to have a balanced withdrawal strategy. I think that's a very interesting statement. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I was just speaking with someone today who has been aggressively funding the Roth IRA and asked me if that was a mistake. And I think to some extent, the fact that they've been able to do that and haven't missed opportunity for other things, right? That they've been able to sustain that over time and have been saving aggressively makes it not a mistake necessarily because you've been able to, and now you have like real dollars in your account, not pre-tax dollars, which is really nice. There might've been a more optimal decision if you were looking big picture. So, you know, don't beat up yourself if you're saving. (laughs) Saving is the hard thing to do. And then we're just talking about optimizing around the edges otherwise. Yeah, this is such a tactics decision, right? Like the number of calls that I get on that open with, well, should I be doing more into my Roth IRA? I'm like, how would I know? I mean, generally more saving is always going to be good. So funding your Roth IRA is almost never a horrible choice. But yeah, you may have opportunities that are like big gaping, like, hey, this is the flashing window for you. Don't worry about it until you get to then. So that happens a lot inside our practice. So we we see that a lot, which is why my brain always defaults to like, "Eh, don't, don't beat yourself up over not being able to do it right now especially if you're in those peak earning years. But congrats for thinking about it. It sounds like you guys are crushing a huge savings rate. That's awesome. Yep. All right, let's get to our last one of the day. This is about 529s. This comes to us from Judah. He said he's a longtime listener of the show, but doesn't have a dog picture to send us. That's very sad. They're living in New York, planning on sending their children to private school. Have a 529 set up for each child and have been contributing since they were born. Wish I had started even earlier, is what he says. Since I live in a state that allows using 529s for K through 12 as well as for college, are there any tips on how to do so? Is there something similar to the 4% rule? Consolidate it in certain years, etc. This is kind of an interesting question, Dan, because I, I feel like it's a it's a distribution strategy question on an account that you're actually trying to get to zero or close enough eventually, right? Yeah. So it is a challenge. The first is, do you need the funds for K through 12? Because, you know, the longer the money sits in that account, the more you get to benefit from the tax advantage growth down the road. 
The tricky thing is down the road isn't for certain. We don't know exactly how much we need to save for college because there's so many variables that can happen between what school they choose to go to, how college costs change over time. So having the money in that account to pay for private school for K through 12 is a value. And even having it hit the account before spending, it gets you a tax benefit in in many states at least. So, you know, I think in general, if you don't need it, like if you had the ability to save it and let it grow for the future, the longer you can keep it in there, the better it is. And I would bunch it towards the later half of my education needs. But if you weren't going to be able to put the money in the 529 because it was going to go right out the door to school, then I think you can just fund the account and withdraw it to pay for costs sooner than later, because at least you get to benefit from potentially a state tax deduction, maybe a little bit of growth in there at a tax advantage rate, and uh, you know, still be better off for it. This immediately moves into the category for me of probably more effort than it's worth. Like when when I start thinking about truly optimizing something like this and like how much work it would take. So for example, in Virginia, you can deduct a $4,000 contribution against your Virginia income taxes, right? So I think we pay 575 is our top marginal rate in Virginia. So every time you do that, let's whip out our handy calculator, 4,000 times 0.0575, $230 in tax savings. Now, if you were handing out 230 bucks, would I take it? Of course. Am I willing to open an account and send $4,000 to Virginia and then do whatever I have to file to then pay the school separately when I could just write the school a check? If that's my only benefit, maybe, but it becomes a lot less attractive than if I can put four grand away, I save my 230 bucks but then I'm going to let that money double or triple before I pull it out tax-free. To me, that's, that's all of the beauty of the 529 is that tax-free compounding, tax-free growth. So just put it in and pull it right back out. I'm kind of like shrug. It's probably not worth it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the longer you can let the cookies bake, the better. It's like a Roth IRA, right? Like you can put the money in. You can use it if you need to. Some people use Roth IRAs for emergency reserve funds. And I get it. But that is not where the Roth IRA really excels. It excels from having the money in there for decades, compounding, compounding, and then being able to pull out a very large sum tax-free, similar to the 529. So if you were Judah right now, how, how would you go about this? Because I think what I would do is I would create a target amount that I want by freshman year of college, right? And so maybe that's... Uh, who who knows whether we're talking about state schools or you know what whatever they're trying to do whatever their family tradition is but if if I'm trying to come up with 150 grand for college by freshman year and I'm hoping that that grows into 200,000 so I'm providing 50 grand a year for education over the course of a of a college lifetime mm-hmm. I'm going to back into the number from there right so it's not really a 4% rule cuz the 4% rule is intended to be sustainable for basically 25 year long retirement, if not forever of how much can you take off? But the, the five twenty nines, you basically want to drain the accounts or get to the last 35 grand at the end of college or else it's kind of pointless. So 
you're going to kind of figure out how much do I think needs to be in there for the college portion. And then to the extent that you can overfund past that, that's fine. But you basically have to do some math on how much am I contributing? Do I think this is going to get me to that 150K target or whatever your number is? And then how much excess have I been able to put in that I can kind of take for current income needs? Right. And even then, again, ideally, I don't want to overfund the 529. Like I want to hit my target. That is my ideal. And as you get closer, maybe, you know, to high school and you find that maybe you're going to overshoot it. Now you have some flexibility to pull some money out because, you know, I'd rather not have it sitting there if I'm not going to need it later. Now, he does mention he has 529s for each child, which means multiple children, which maybe gives you a little bit more buffer if you do overshoot your target to roll it down to the the next in line. But again, and the, like, the 35,000 that you can push to the Roth eventually gives you another opportunity. For so that sure. Cha- right. That change in law that we, that we saw, and we've covered that, but the ability that you can now go $35,000 per student on moving money from a 529 to a Roth IRA gives you a little bit of cover for being a little over, but you still don't want to be at like super overfunded. That's not the goal here. You just want right. as much as you need. There's an, there's an opportunity cost for overfunding and that's you haven't been saving into other vehicles that might have more utility for you. I'm sure that was clear as mud for everybody. Ho- hopefully that made sense. I don't know. Uh, anytime you get into numbers on this show, I, I worry that we've lost people. They're yeah. sitting in their cars going, what are these guys talking about? More peanut butter and jelly talk. That's what, that's what the people want. <laughs> that's what we're going to convert our show to is dog pictures and peanut butter and jelly. That's all we're going to talk about here. How, how did we even start with, oh, we started with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when you were giving like technical instructions as an example for something. I think that's what it was. Yeah. It was, it was the like, how, how do you describe if like, if you had to speak somebody through making a PB and J, how would you tell them to do it? And right, it turns right. out everybody disagrees with what I would tell them to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I would tell them, but it wouldn't be that. It that's wouldn't right. be that. Yeah. Not only did you do a bad job of describing it, you were flat out wrong. This is unacceptable. Good I love times. it. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show until we scrounge up the energy to change it and create a better one. Uh, but for the moment, that's where you can probably catch us. Uh, otherwise check us out on Instagram, YouTube, wherever you consume the show. We appreciate you. Catch you all next week. <laughs>